Do you ever wonder how your favorite country artist got to where they are today? We had no fear whatsoever. In fact, we, we probably made a lot of mistakes. People go, what are they doing? They're not ready for this. But we were so hungry to be out there in front of people that we probably should have spent a little more time honing our craft <laughs> before we just dove in. Did success come easy or was it a long, hard road? I wasn't sure I was going to make it at all, but I just kept like the little engine that could. I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. What advice would they give to a young artist? The greatest advice Elvis ever gave me. If you ever forget where you came from, you're never going to get where you want to go. Meet our co-hosts, Candy O'Terry and J.C. Don Valeris. They sat down with icons in the music industry, and you've got a front row seat. Welcome to Country Music Success Stories. Hi, I'm Candy O'Terry. And I'm J.C. Don Valeris. You have no idea how excited I am about this episode. We're sitting down with a multi-Grammy, ACM, and CMA superstar I met in an elevator years ago in Tunica, Mississippi, and later worked for, yes, it's true, my friend, the one and only Pam Tillis. It was so cool to see the friendship between you two. We sat down with Pam at the Glen Campbell Museum in Nashville, which is quickly becoming our home away from home. Everybody knows everybody in Nashville. And in this interview, Pam talks about how Glenn Campbell helped Mel Tillis back in the day. And that's not all. This interview is so packed with Pam's stories, we just had to split it in two. In part one, you're going to hear how she was very shy as a child, how she met Trisha Yearwood and Alan Jackson while singing demos when she first got started, and wait until you hear her advice for singers with their hearts set on Nashville. We set up our microphones right beside Glenn Campbell's guitars and costumes to hear how the rhinestone cowboy changed her father's life by giving him a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Dad was a semi-regular on the Glenn Campbell show. There's a few pivotal moments in everybody's career. And Glenn Campbell, Good Time Hour, was a pivotal moment for Dad because it was the first time, you know, Dad had done a lot of regional television, but national TV was a whole new ball game, and the world didn't know how much they would love Daddy. And then when he got that national television exposure, they were like, well, maybe we need Mel Tillis <laughs> in our lives. So it was great. So we always appreciated what Glenn did for Dad, but they were good buddies. Well, speaking of meeting people, you and I met years and years ago. I don't know if you remember this story, but we met in an elevator in Tunica, Mississippi. Oh, gosh. At a Grits and Glamour show that you were doing with Lori Morgan. Yeah. And you and I had a conversation. You asked me about what I was doing in my career. And I told you that I was doing (laughs) social media and marketing. And you said, well, I'm in need of that. Oh, yes. (laughs) And so you took my phone number. And a couple days later, your manager called me. And I got the opportunity to work with you, which That's is right. such right. a great honor thank of you, my thank career. You. Yeah. Thank you. You're, well, you've gone on to do some great things. And, well, thank uh, you. and this is a really cool thing that you're doing now. So I'm, I'm proud of you. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to give you a blast from the past. You okay. and I met about 20 years ago in Boston at WKLB Country 102.5. Oh my God. Now that you say it, it's like, wait a minute. Music director. It's you. It's me. <laughs> Music director wow. Jimmy Rogers and Mike Brophy, the program director. Oh, that was a big stage. Big station. I met you in the hallway. Wow. And I was telling JC what an honor it is for me to meet you again thank today. You, thank you. Oh, because so you kind. had so much presence oh. and so much star power as you stopped and you said, Oh, hello. So nice to meet you. And here we are oh, in the Glen Campbell you. Museum. Thank you. Yes. 
Okay. When we are done, we're going to walk you into the viewing room where there's a clip of your daddy oh, on the sweet. Glenn Campbell show. Yeah, you know, as I'm talking about it, I, I know I was talking with JC about it just a moment ago, but dad did a song with Glenn. They did a video. It's called Slow Nights, and that, I'm sure that was a highlight. You know, for tourists, they're coming here to experience the magic and the stardust. But for us, these are like family scrapbooks. These are our personal memories. You grow up steeped in this very different way of life (laughs) because everybody gives up a normal life. Now, believe me, we're blessed in so many ways. But you give up a normal life to do this. So it's a very particular kind of a walk, you know. There's so many things to talk about your career. Your latest album, though, is where we want to begin. Looking for a feeling on your own record label, right? Right. Stellar Cat. That's right. Is there such a thing as a Stellar Cat? Well, it's kind of a nod to my astrology sign. Ah. You know, I'm a Leo. And, Me and too. You are? When's your birthday? August 3rd. Oh, wow. Daddy was August the 8th. I'm July 24th. Anyway, so it's kind of a nod to that. You I don't know. I just Leo's, like the name okay. of it. And Stellar Cats just reach it. I, you know, I'm always reaching for the stars with every project. I love the song, Dolly 1969. Thank you. Tell us all about that song. Oh, my gosh. That was written by a guy named Bob Regan. And I got a couple little stories to tell you about that. First of all, I've known Dolly since I was a little girl. And there again, pivotal moment. Another early TV exposure for Daddy was the Porter Wagner show. Dolly Parton, you know, the female star of the Porter Wagner show. He really brought her along. Yes, he really did. And that was one of her big breaks, right? Anyway, so I've always loved Dolly, and I've gotten to work with her. I've sung on her records, and she sung on one of mine. And so, like the rest of the world, I've always been enchanted with Dolly Parton and looked up to her. So Bob Regan told me the story. It's, It's a picture. It paints a picture. And it's Dolly, picture this, you know, and he's, he's spelling it all out. He's painting the scene. She's got her foot up on the chrome fender of an old car, and there's guitars and Cadillacs surrounded, and he talks about the color of her eyeshadow and the look in her eyes. It's all just perfectly cinematic. I said, well, you got to tell me how you wrote this song. Like a lot of songwriters, they go into the office every day. They sit down, and they... Right you know, on just demand. like a journeyman, you know, yeah. they're just, they're, they're craftspeople. They show up every day and they, they get to work. They roll up their sleeves. And he said that day, nothing was happening. He just like, there was no inspiration. He was really hit a, hit a brick wall. And he said, for the longest time, he'd had a picture of Dolly on his wall. And it's this picture. And he said, oh, to heck with it. I'll just write that. I got this black and white picture on my wall of Dolly Parton standing by Sedan DeVille. And it looks to be in the late 60s because it's all chrome and fins and she's all blonde hair and curves and high heels. And spilling out of that Cadillac trunk, there's guitars and drums and mandolins. And Dolly's got one leg up on an old tweed suitcase. And she's staring right into that camera lens. And every time I look at that picture, I think, Oh, I wish I could go back to be a stowaway in that long black Cadillac. I want to go where she's going. I want to see what Dolly's seen. Try on that coat of many colors. Slap that little bitch
because I was kind of going back to little Pam looking ahead to walking in her shoes. But let me tell you the second part of the story. Remember Paul Harvey? And he always had, now the rest of the story. So, a few years later, I'm on a bike trail in Nashville down by the Cumberland Metro Center. And I don't go out biking very often, and that was the first time I'd been on that trail. And all of a sudden, I hear my name, Pam. Hey, Pam. And I look around, I'm like, well, who the hell, who knows me on this trail? Like, And there was a man on his bike and he said oh it's me it's Jim and um, he said you just did a song about my photograph he's the one who shot the famous picture so anyway we started talking about it Jim Harrington I was drawing a blank for a second I said you got to tell me about that photo but for a moment he could see a look of puzzlement flash across my face and I said wait a minute Jim because Jim's not that old of a guy and I said because it's Dolly 1969 is the name of the song. And it looks like Dolly 1969. He goes, oh, no, we shot that picture in 92. And I said, what? They staged it to look like it was back in time. Well, when you're the daughter of a country legend like Mel Tillis, you grow up around the music. Can you tell us a little bit about your childhood and in particular what it was like to grow up in your house? Country chaos. No, that was mainly because there were five of us. And Daddy was gone a lot. There again, you know, I talk about the sacrifices that it's not just the artist, but the family sacrifice. And especially that era, it was a big deal for country artists to sell 25, 50,000 records. It was a little bit more mom and pop. The big stars, they'd sometimes go in a station wagon. And you traveled 250 days a year, sometimes three. But Daddy had a lot of, I thought, there. I'm like, even as a kid, I'm like, man, my daddy's friends are kind of weird. They're kind of wacky and weird. You know, they were colorful and they had charisma. And, you know, Roger Miller and Bobby Bear and Waylon Jennings, they were kind of crazy. Did you have a sense? Oh, wait, one time Chris Christopherson was at the award ceremony last night. And I'm the only person sitting in the audience thinking, well, Mama chased him off with a frying pan. Because he and Daddy had been out partying for days. And Daddy came home to change clothes or something. She said, you're not going anywhere. Chase Chris Christopherson off. I'm like, that yeah. was life in my house. That was right? life. And then every now and then we go to the Opry with him or we go on a show. And there were two daddies. I had two daddies. I had real daddy. And I started a song one time called Silver Line Daddy. And Silver Line Daddy is the daddy that I stood in the wings and I could see from behind and it was his silhouette as the spotlight hit him so I had silver line daddy did you have a sense even as a little girl that your dad was a superstar I knew people really loved him that's what I knew immediately you know and then he had just crazy success like you know he'd say well heck uh, I've won every uh, award to have he had a theater for a long time he was in Branson Missouri And I just loved standing on the side of the stage. And I'd look out at the audience. I wasn't even watching him after a while. I'd watch the audience. And I'm like, oh, my God, it looks like they pumped happy gas into the theater. People were just enthralled with him. He just had this grace and command and humor. And they were little happy babies. Did you always know you wanted to be a singer? Well, it's really funny. Daddy said that I had a funny cry. He said, I did this weird little cry. I won't even try to do it now. But 
it's really funny. I think some of that sound ended up on maybe it was Memphis. <laughs> it was a little growly cry. But seriously, Daddy was writing songs all the time. So back then, JC, you'll appreciate this because you know the technical side of the business as a, as a singer, you know, mm-hmm. songwriter, the music that you've done. They had these ginormous tape machines and he'd bring those home in the middle of the night and thread them up and he didn't care if he was waking us up he would come home and all the music they recorded that day and through the night it'd be one two three in the morning he'd drag in and he'd play these songs so I woke up in the middle of the night all the time hearing music and the all daddy songs years and years later cut to early 1990s and I'm playing Gaylord Opryland. This lady came up to me in the meet and greet, and she says, do you remember me? I was your kindergarten teacher. You would come to school every day, and you'd go, would you like to hear my new song? Before I knew it, I really always said, I'm going to be a singer, before I really even knew what that meant. You so know? you were manifesting it from the moment I guess you decided I was. you wanted I just to never do it. Really, <laughs> and as a little kid, I was really, really shy. And I would walk along in the backyard and we had a little chain link fence and I'd drag a stick along the fence. I was a little mournful thing and I'd have little tears in my eyes because I was so sad. And I would make up melodies. I'm like, I can make up melodies. So I found out I had the superpower too. And then I loved to sing. And then, you know, in Nashville public schools at that time, we had great music back then. You know, you learned the recorder and you learned the xylophone and I was in church choir, and so at eight years old, my mom got me an upright piano. And I immediately, at eight years old, I wrote another sad song. (laughs) It was a gospel song. I don't know. At at eight years old, I decided to write a gospel song. And I don't remember the song, but it was called, Don't That Road Look Long and Rocky. (laughs) At eight years old, like I knew all about it. (laughs) Well, one of the ways that you got your start was actually singing on demos, yeah. for other singers to learn and actually record for themselves. Correct. What are some of your earliest memories of that time when you were just getting your start in Nashville? It was a great training ground. One thing that I can say is a lot of the young musicians that were doing demos at the time, they've become superstar musicians and been on tour with the best people cut some of the biggest hit records that you've ever heard, but we were all kind of still young, cutting our teeth, learning it. This is back in the golden era of studios. People didn't have studios in their home. These were real studios, real engineers. And I just had the advantage of learning on the job, just the best job. And I met incredible songwriters. People heard something in my voice and I had very good pitch. And I could learn very fast. I think for a moment I was Mel Tillis's daughter, but then when people knew that I could sell a song, I started getting called. I bought my first house. Of course, it, real estate wasn't sky high like it is today, but I bought that with money I made from singing. And, and so for a long time I was a session singer. Yeah. Well, and, and one of the cool things, though, as I made the transition, Nashville was a very big jingle town for a long time. I can't tell you all the songwriters that I sang demos for mostly, but I met some interesting people along the way. I will tell you, I met Trisha Yearwood singing on a Paul Overstreet record, 
Paul's wrote On the Other Hand and just a lot of ginormous hits. Back then, though, he didn't have any money. Trisha and I, he had the microphone set up in a, in a side bedroom, in the guest bedroom. And she was just starting out. She was talking about, we were both, you know, talking about, oh, well, I'm trying to go to the gym and get in shape. And I'm hoping I got a record deal. And she was sweet. I mean, I adored her right off the bat. And so I got to sing with her. And then cutting jingles one day, I was about to do a, a commercial for a Coors Silver Bullet. And they said, well, you're going to cut the female version, and there's a kid that's working in the mailroom at TNN, and he's just starting out, but he's got something, and uh, he's going to do the male version. And he showed up, and a tall, skinny kid, a tall, blonde, long hair, Alan Jackson, just starting out, very shy, very differential. So I met some interesting people in the studio. You are such an incredibly talented songwriter. But you also aren't afraid to go out and seek out some of the best songs from other writers in this town, which I think is so important, too. What do you look for when you're going out to find a song that someone else has written for an album you're working on? I love songs that are like mini movies. If you don't cut a song that you wrote yourself, you want one that sounds like it was ripped out of a page out of your diary. You just have to know that song from the heart. You know, there's better singers. And Daddy would always say, there's smarter people, there's better singers. The one thing growing up in the business is I did have a feeling for that extra something that made a song great. And I knew how high the bar was. You can't cut a good song. You have to record a great song. And after a while, I started, I'd walk into publishing meetings and I'd say, I don't want a song. I want an event. That's such a great way to put it. I I knew that's what it would take to get me off the ground. And, you know, I can work 30 years later on the songs I cut back then. Well, you are a proud member of the Grand Ole Opry. Yes. And then you had the honor of inducting your father in 2007. Yes. What was that night like for you? Like living, will the circle be unbroken? Right. It's funny, a lot of people go, what, you got in before your dad? But daddy was in Branson for so long. Like I said, he toured nonstop, and he was never in town on a Saturday night. I tell everybody he finally slowed down long enough for the opera to catch him. The music industry has changed so much since you got your start, and somehow you have persevered. You have had continuous hits. You've continued to make music. It's absolutely incredible. What do you think the secret to your career longevity is? I just touched on it. I think the right songs. Right. What's happening in our careers now, there's still a real connection with 90s country. I'm sure you're hearing this from a lot of artists. It's kind of amazing. Country music has changed very much, and I'm not going to sit here and critique it. A lot of people, that's really... I don't understand it. it. It doesn't quite add up because a lot of people go, we don't get it. We don't like it. But then you go to these concerts and there's thousands of people. So like, wait a minute, hold the press. The neat thing about country music now is there's something for everybody. And like artists like me that aren't on the radio anymore, you can still see us live. All our records are on all the streaming services. There's still country gold stations. There's still WSM, still the Grand Ole Opry. We're still here for you, but people still love the simplicity and the directness of 90s country. When I first started working with you, I was brand new to town, and I remember trying to soak up every bit of it because, you know, you were someone who I grew up 
listening to on the radio. And I was just, I felt so lucky to be in your presence and to be able to learn Aww. from you. <laughs> so you. if a new artist were to move to town today and come to you and say, Pam, what do I do? Oh, what, are, what is your wisdom? I mean, the industry's oh, changed so much, even since I moved here. Well, if you're listening, if your ears just perked up, <laughs> I'm, like I said, there's people way smarter than me about this. I've heard several big stars in different fields of show business say, don't be afraid to tell the truth because it's the ones that you're not going to talk out of it, no matter what you say, that are going to be fine. They'll come here anyway, and they'll try their luck. But the hardest thing is the sheer volume of talent. And it's very important for people to recognize that because a lot of people come to town thinking, oh, man, wait till they get a load of me. Right. You can't go to a restaurant in Nashville without a very talented person probably bringing you your water or bussing your table or parking your car or whatever. There's just so much talent. So it's very important to know that the bar is extremely high. And don't come here without getting the most experience that you can in your hometown. If there's nothing going on in your hometown, get the most experience you can in your state. If there's nothing going on in your state, go regional. Make sure you got something to sell before you show up here. And don't trust your mom and your dad to tell you you're great or your best friend. You've got to have people that really tell you the truth. Great advice from Pam Tillis, aimed at singers, songwriters, and musicians who have their sights set on Nashville and a career in country music. Part two of our interview with Pam Tillis will include the stories behind mega hits, like Maybe It Was Memphis, Don't Tell Me What To Do, Shake the Sugar Tree, and Mi Vida Loca, and of course, the secret ingredient to her success as a country music icon. So keep an ear out for it, okay? There they are, Candy O'Terry and J.C. Dawn Valeris, two award-winning interviewers who are respected and trusted right here in Nashville. Do us a favor and hit that subscribe button right now and tell your friends about the show. Follow them at Country Music Success Stories and on TikTok at Candy and J.C. 